0: Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project podcast is one about the relationships that we have with our bodies. Today, I got to interview somebody who I deeply, deeply admire. Her name is Mickey Kendall. She is an incredible writer, diversity consultant, and occasional feminist. She wrote the New York Times bestselling book, Hood Feminism, which is I felt like an answer to so many questions that I had about the feminist movement. She's also the author of Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists, which is a graphic novel. And my gosh, I am so stoked that she wrote a graphic novel. We bonded over how much we love those when learning about history at the end of the conversation. We talked about so many important things that range anywhere from poverty to eating disorders to food accessibility this was such an important conversation that I was honored to have and I am excited to be able to share it with you so please listen check out Hood Feminism and all the things you guys this is a good one Mickey Kendall, how are you doing in this giant heat wave of a world we're in?
1: Um I've accepted that my real world uh, will happen at night. I will be a vampire until this is like this wave is back.
0: <laughs> oh, I might join you there because I can't handle this, so I'm happy that we're on the same page, and we'll have some company at the nighttime vampire parties.
1: Oh. Nighttime vampire. Friends. Wait, can we have like a fire carnival at night? Like I feel like we should do that. Oh, yeah. Like all around the like cool stuff at
0: night. For sure. Only the cool stuff at night. We'll just we'll just hang out with the hamsters and all the other nocturnal animals for entertainment because the daytime is useless now, in my opinion. <laughs> oh man. Uh so Mickey, you're uh, a little outside of Chicago right now, right? And you grew up in Chicago. Yes,
1: I grew up in Chicago. I am definitely a Chicago girl. Um, I am one of those people where, even though I'll sometimes like, oh, it'd be really cool to live in a certain place here, I end up moving back to Chicago. And not only do I end up moving back to Chicago, I end up going right back to the neighborhood where I grew up. so Like I leave, but I never really leave.
0: Oh man, that's something special. W- why do you think you keep going back?
1: I've never found any place like Chicago, right? And I think some of this is one of those things. So I grew up in Hyde Park right next to Lake Michigan, right? And like, I know that this is like one of the natural wonders of the world. And I think that when you grow up someplace really stunning, it's hard then to be impressed by anywhere else. Not that you don't like other places, but, you know, like, like, New York girls will get, like, super fanatically loyal about New York. hmm I feel that way about Chicago, but only about, like, the south side by the lake in Hyde Park. And maybe South Shore, right? Like, I have this ridiculous attachment to being able to walk by the lake. That sounds magical. It's the best thing. Like, when I am upset or it has been a rough day or whatever to this day... I take a walk by the lake and let the wind clear my mind. Oh,
0: that is so wonderful. I just that alone makes me understand why you would go back to where to where that's accessible and where you grew up for that reason. My gosh. I grew up in Colorado. So I I had a similar feeling when I would leave and go move around and then come back home to like visit family and be like, why did I leave this place? Have I seen what it looks like in the mountains outside compared to the desert or wherever else I ended up moving? But yeah, that that sounds really, really magical. Um, Mickey, I do you want to tell our listeners here a little bit more about uh, who you are and what you do, just so that they have a little bit of a, a basis to go off of in case they haven't already? Sure.
1: Uh, so, I'm Mickey Kendall. I write, and uh, I'm now the on the internet professional. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I am a person who talks about race and class and feminism and food and a bunch of other topics. Sometimes I'm talking about science fiction or fantasy or fiction in general, um, representation, that kind of thing. I do really nerdy stuff. And then uh, people give me money for it.
0: Really <laughs> that's the dream. Nerdy stuff and just get money for it. I love that. And I'm, I love fantasy, science fiction, world stuff, which I did not know was something that you were passionate about. So I'm excited to hear about that later.
1: I am basically Ooh. what happens when you give a nerd more.
0: <laughs> oh, that's a perfect bio.
1: I might add that to my bio. Oh,
0: you probably should. Maybe I'll make that part of your bio for the the interview. I'll make that the tagline. Very cool. Well, uh, for those listening, I found Mickey Kendall when I was looking up books on different kinds of or different or books on feminism. And I found your book Hood Feminism and was so excited about it because it felt like the answer to so many questions that I've had when learning anything about. The feminist movement. And so I'm really honored that you wanted to come on and talk to me about it and just let me pick your brain and hear your story and all the things that you have to say and want to offer. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, so, Mickey, to start off the interview, will you describe the relationship that you have with your body?
1: So, I have this thing where I call bodies a personal meat suit. And thus, I say to people that your meat suit is your business. Other people's meat suits are none of your business. And I know that can sound a little dispassionate or whatever, but one of the ways I manage having an eating disorder is to stop making so much of my life about how my body looks. Doesn't mean I never slip up. Doesn't mean I never fall into Mm. like some negative things around my body. I definitely have. It just means that one of the ways I kind of catch myself is to remind myself that the body I am in fundamentally is a machine made of meat. And I have to keep that machine running, right? Mm -hmm. And so food keeps that machine running. One of the things I, affectionately, I have anorexia, even though I'm not currently in an active, starving myself place. But I catch myself when I'm stressed or uh, things are emotionally fraught, not eating because then I have control over something, right? So yeah. my countermeasure with myself is that I have to eat twice a day. It doesn't even matter where I eat, but two meals a day, right? Mm-hmm. And you'd be amazed by how easy it is to have a public version of an eating disorder as a black girl and have no one notice if you have a little extra size, if, you know, first of all, people sort of reward you for weight loss, regardless of how that weight loss occurs socially, but also other people's own disordered relationships with food and bodies mean that you can be very sick in front of them. And as long as you are not like At a point where you are visibly in need of hospitalization, they won't even realize it, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of fitness culture, which is part of like my meat soup logic, a lot of fitness culture, whether we're talking about like the low carb people or the high protein or whatever, is really just different eating disorders, right? Yeah. How you stack them up together, how they impact your meat soup. These are all things that are different. And so um, a thing I've noticed is that people will make other people's bodies about their relationship with their body, about their feelings, right? And sometimes that's theoretically harmless, but a lot of times it's harmful because what people are really doing is that person's body doesn't belong to that person. It belongs to how I feel about my body. Right. I don't know if you've ever worked with someone who was like a calorie counter and who would tell you, do you know how many calories there are in your salad? Do you know how many calories there are in that burger? I'm like, yes, it's frustrating and yes, it can be triggering, but also it's really not about you and what you're eating. It's about what they feel about their ability to eat those same kinds of things.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I could not agree more, especially when you're talking about how all the different kinds of diets are just different kinds of eating disorders. I was just on a rant about this, about the new diet stuff and the keto stuff. And it just, I just could not agree with you more. Um, When do you feel like you noticed this? uh, It's you starting to develop an eating disorder um, and like it becoming about control. Like when? How early of an age do you remember that?
1: Um, so I should preface this because somebody's going kind to of get offended by saying I come from a family with a lot of morbid obesity and before okay. people are like, Oh, we've been healthy bodies at every size. This is all very valid. However, we are not talking about a healthy body at every size. We're talking about very much in some cases unhealthy bodies, um, with the health issues that can come from small frames, lots of weight. We'll put it that way. Uh huh. And because there's a show, right? Like My 600 Pound Life, I think is what that show is called. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know how on that show there's always family members taking care of the person who has mobility issues? Uh huh. I would be one of those kids. Right? Oh, wow. Right. So, I grew up in a sort of chaotic uh, way where there are reasons I lived with my grandmother for a large portion of my childhood. And there are reasons that, as soon as I could leave my parents' house where I didn't live until I was a teenager, and I left, still a teenager. And through all of that, food plays this really bizarre role, both as like a comfort thing, but also as a weapon, right? Uh-huh. And my life, in a lot of ways, was out of control. Um, I lived in a lot of places with a lot of relatives and sometimes for long periods, sometimes for very short periods because of other people. So what could I control while everything else was in chaos? My body. Except because I was in a family where food was doing a lot of things. And one of those things, and this is a weird story with my grandmother, was my grandmother broke during the Depression. So my grandmother wanted you to eat everything on your plate, right? Regardless mm-hmm. of what was on that plate. And this was her, her issues with food. So when I was probably around seven or eight, um, there's certain foods that to this day I don't like, right? Yeah. She would eat something involving, uh, it was liver and onions with, I want to say turnips, right? Uh huh. My grandmother could make many things. Nothing on the list I just said to you was on that list, right? (laughs) I do have an aunt who can make liver and onions you would eat. My grandmother and my aunt did not cook liver and onions the same way. So that was problem one. (laughs) Problem two, because of her thing about vegetables, right? So like there was greens and turnips or rutabaga, whatever she called it, on this plate too. Yes this is the least appetizing plate you could imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, indeed. So she makes this meal, and she likes it, but even my grandfather doesn't like it. Um, and we're talking like old people born in the early 1900s, and he's like, "I am not eating this. Okay. Fine. <laughs> and like my grandfather literally like ran a couple of hot dogs under some hot water, and I mean ran, like under on, under the sink, hot water over hot dogs out of the pack, ate those, and went to bed. Oh, gosh. Right. Meanwhile, my grandmother and I are going to war over this plate, okay? <laughs> okay. I'm not eating it. And usually, people tell you that you'll eat it if you get hungry enough. Well, I'm a kid who has not ever going to be this hungry, first of all. And second of all, though, I wouldn't recognize it till later. This is the beginning of me figuring out that if I can't control anything else, I can control what I eat, right? Mm. So I didn't eat it. And uh, my grandmother had a thing where she would serve that same plate to you until over and over till you ate it, right? So breakfast, I sat there till I fell asleep. Breakfast next day, it's the same plate. I didn't eat Lunch, it's the same thing. At dinner, she's pulling out the same food to warm it up. And my grandfather comes in. um, And for this, for me, he was kind of heroic. But it does, it's going to sound kind of jerkish. He looks at this plate that by now looks awful. Not that it looks great to begin with, but I want you (laughs) to imagine being reheated, sitting reheated. He comes in, he sees her sitting it in front of me. And I have sat basically at this table. For almost twenty-four hours, right? Mm-hmm. And he picks it up, and he throws the whole plate in the garbage. <laughs> He's like, "We're not doing this. We're not. We're not." Because I have cried, I have refused, yeah. she has yelled. We had this long saga. Um, oh, right, you poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> so the the real kicker here is that. Um, I don't even think she liked this meal. She barely ate anything, but she was going to make sure I stopped avoiding these foods I didn't like. Uh Uh-huh. That's not what happened. So we have this whole thing, and then he made, and this will sound like a nothing meal, but he fried like some potatoes and eggs, and um, that's what I ate. Kind Uh Uh-huh. And so... Not that he backed me up any time I refused to eat anything, but he was very clear that although there were some things you absolutely should eat, greens being one of them, at least a mouthful, you're not going to make a plate of all the things no one in this house wants to eat and then expect her to eat it, right? Yeah. But part of that whole thing is that my grandmother had a very unhealthy relationship with food in her body in part because of the depression. So, you know, she would eat a can of biscuits, like a whole can of biscuits, if there were biscuits in the house. There were certain foods she didn't buy because she couldn't control herself around them all the time. And so we have this whole like dramatic saga and then that's it theoretically. Well, a couple more years go by, my grandfather gets sick. And by this point, my mother and I are interacting again, I'm going to her house, all of these things. And my mother is of the snack wells generation. So she actually had a thyroid condition but didn't want to do any of the things related to her thyroid, so she kept trying to lose weight in every other way besides thyroid medication, and you know how that will go. Yeah. So she only bought diet food. Oh no. So think Slim Fast, think Snack Wells, think Lean Cuisines. But I was like okay. 12 by the, the the point in which the story starts to really go left. The other thing to note is that I come from a lot of short, sort of plump people, right? I am very tall, relatively speaking. I'm not actually very tall, but think a family of people who are five foot one, five foot two, and then a five foot seven 12 year old.
0: Oh, okay. Right? I got a picture there.
1: Yeah. yeah. In some some pictures, I look like the family Yeti. Um, Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So, at this point, I am starting to get compliments for being slim. Okay? Mm -hmm. And my mother and I have a very fraught relationship. We will remain having a fraught relationship for all time. Oh, no. And she is... Very fixated on diet food for a host of reasons, but what happens when all you have in the house is diet food, and especially like snack wells and lean cuisines kind of stuff? You're not actually eating anything, right? Like you're eating it, but not you're never satisfied. None of this gives you that satiated feeling. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, I have hit puberty, and I am in the middle of the raging growth spurt from five foot one to five foot seven. Um, I think I was like five, one, and eleven years old, and then like, boom, right? Oh my gosh! So there's just this wealth of calories that will go into a body that's grown. Um, so she's like, "Well, you can eat the same stuff I do, and a, none of this stuff is satisfying, and b, this is where I learn uh, that aspartame and my brain are not friends. Oh so no! All of the food in the house gives me a headache." So we fight a lot about food, about what I eat or don't eat. Um, And meanwhile, I have my stepdad. And my stepdad is a person who really likes his food, right? But he likes Giordano's, rib tips. It's not the world's healthiest diet. We are not particularly veggie forward here, fruit forward here. So no one's having a good relationship with food. (laughs) And my grandfather is sick with myasthenia gravis, Oh. So we are have hit puberty, we have untreated thyroid disease, like several eating disorders available. <sighs> and diet food. You could have declared a war uh with less stress. So this is where the the actual eating disorder really, I think, fully kicks in because we yeah. find out food. Every meal is a battle. Or the lack of meals, right? Because we now don't have full meals. We have like lean cuisines and slim fast and whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, And because I am a petty teenage girl, um, I started doing things like putting the vanilla ice cream that my stepdad buys by the bucket load. Like there, I don't know if you remember these like five gallon, like tubs of ice cream you could Mm get in the store. Right. Yeah. Uh, Right. Um, so for weird things that won't make any sense reasons, we would have slim fast and ice cream, but not chocolate syrup, right? Uh Uh-huh. Milk. I am a petty, petty person. So as I (laughs) started doing, I started putting the slim fast in the milkshake, right? Oh my gosh. Um, My parents are having, my mother and stuff are having some kind of own internal, so like I don't know if anyone listening to this will remember there there used to be a truck like the Schwann's truck that would come and you could buy meat and other things from this truck right Mm -hmm. so we have like meat from the truck or other random things from the truck and diet food so we just sort of battle back and forth about food and when food is available and like my parents go through this phase where they basically eat out all the time and we're not we're living in the same house but we're not really living in the same house right so I'm eating at friends' houses, I'm eating at school. Uh, sometime I'm back at my grandmother's house, I'm eating there, but I'm not eating at their house, really. Like I am, but it's not real food. So when I can't eat what I want to eat, I don't eat. Or if it really got to be a thing, I eat fruit. And I don't know if you've ever seen those lists that, uh, side note, when you see a list of zero calorie foods, is 100% an anorexia-friendly list. Mm -hmm. Like, they're now pro boards and whatever, but back then we weren't yet calling them that. But those Mm -hmm. lists were everywhere. So those would be the things that would be in the house as part of diet culture, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You could have a salad with lemon pepper, but you didn't put dressing on your salad, all that weird stuff. Oh, that's so sad. It was a very sad time. Yeah. Um, And then because... My personal meat suit is having an emotional impact on other people in the family's meat suits. Um, Me eating is always a topic of conversation, which does not help. Right? You're gonna get fat. That's why you're so skinny. Like whatever the whatever the opinions are, those opinions are being voiced. Right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I have a, a, for a long time, probably from twelve to about seventeen or eighteen just the most ridiculous relationship with food and Mm -hmm. right. My grandfather dies. um, So then I'm living with my parents theoretically full-time, but not really because then my grandmother gets sick um, and she has uh, breast cancer for the first time. Like it's just a whole lot going on and anywhere in this story where you would think that like a conversation internally would happen about like my weight and my health, it wasn't happening with the adults what happened is that my friends, other teenagers, started to be super concerned, right? Other kids, moms, and, and whoever started to be super concerned because I was very thin. Think five foot six and 90 pounds thin. Oh, wow. Right. And so there's a picture somewhere that's never going to see the light of the public. But uh, a friend of mine took it at her house at a party I wasn't supposed to be at, uh, <laughs> because I was in the middle of a full fledged rebellion. And when she there showed, yeah, when she showed it to me, I was like, oh god, I'm really skinny because for some reason I couldn't see it in the mirror, but I could see it in the picture.
0: That makes sense.
1: And so then I, you know, I'm 16 and I start working and then I start buying my own food. And we enter this other weird thing with my stepdad that at the time I didn't think was as strange as I do now, where he had what he called the two day rule. So if you didn't eat your food in two days, he would eat it. Uh-huh. Except the measure of two days is a very bizarre thing, right? It seemed to be based on whether or not he wanted your leftovers, whether or not he wanted what you made. So we fight some more, right? Like we have new and exciting fights. Um, And I'm just, even though I would say now I was rebelling, I wasn't really rebelling so much as I was just like, oh, I can't manage this. I can manage Mm -hmm. me. I can't manage that. Yeah. So I don't bring food home very often. I don't eat at home very often. Um, And I had a friend, Wendy, her parents, the Onsman's, we're very much, oh, come over anytime. I remember this conversation. Hang out at our house. You need to ride home. Why don't you just spend the night? You know, that kind of thing. Uh huh. And the Onsmans had this deep freeze loaded with food, kids, kid friendly food, right? They would go to whatever the bulk shopping was before we had all these brands, like Sam's Club, whatever. Um, yeah. And they'd buy like boxes of pizzas, boxes of those, um, like the Green Giant veggies and butter sauce, frozen corn, that kind of stuff. Okay. So I ate at their house a lot. Like shout out to them for making sure I ate something that approximated a balanced meal when everybody else was in chaos. Yeah. Um and but I'm also a sixteen year old senior in high school. Cause my family's has got a lot going on there. Uh, choices were made. So I've got a job, I've got my own money, and I am not really technically being supported fully by my parents because drama reasons so I can buy my food I can eat at the Onsman's I can do a lot of things and my relationship with food kind of starts to heal but it heals in a way where I realize I can't eat around my family too much because whatever's going on over there is making me sicker if that makes sense yeah so I graduate from high school there's this long period of like not great Because when you're a 16-year-old senior and you've graduated, nobody knows what to do with you, right? People say go to college, but no college really wants a 16-year-old in their dorms. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew I wasn't ready for college. So I have like a series of mall jobs, whatever. And then I joined the military. And I will never tell you Uncle Sam is necessarily good for you, but they have a thing called profiles. So I hit basic training And I got a food profile because the army knows what to do when the military general knows what to do with the kids who show up with eating disorders because they get a lot of them. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when you, you hit the the door, uh, if your weight is above a certain ratio to your height, but you're still super thin, which I was, You can join if you're below a certain ratio, there's a different conversation had about what needs to happen because you can't join because physically you can't make it through basic training. Mm -hmm. Um, But what they try to do is teach you a better relationship with food and exercise and health. I'm not going to tell you it's a great program necessarily because there'll be people say, well, it wasn't that good. And I'm not going to tell you it was great. It was better than what I had. So it seemed okay to me. Okay. Right, Um, never an inpatient situation but the drills and other staff know so they send you to counseling with the chaplain on Sundays like you become part of the Sunday group and you have certain stuff on your uniforms to show that you either have to go through the line twice or that you can be given extra food as you go through there's also a version of this where you can't get as much food because you're overweight so again it's not great Okay, but it's Sort of corrects a lot of what's wrong in my brain around food and whatever, because they spend a lot of time teaching everyone what a nutritious meal looks like. And not that this is good food, but it's very much like food pyramid-based food. Yeah, and you do okay. get some choices. They're big on the idea that they're going to teach you to make good choices. So it helps. Well, after that, after the military and everything else, I, you know, have gotten, I've grown up, I've had a child and I don't want my kid to have my issues with food. So for lack of a better way of phrasing it, I turn into whatever the the mix is between raised by depression era grandma, where you have like four of things you buy and the Yonsmans who always had kid friendly food available. And my kids don't have the fraught relationship with food because there's a lot of stuff after they've eaten it once and they don't like it. I'm never serving it to them again.
0: Mm.
1: Right. You got to try it. You hate it. All right. That's good. That's fair. Right. And weirdly yeah. enough, uh, one child does not like cooked carrots. One doesn't like onions. I'm never going to okay. find them about those things.
0: That's good. Here you go. My mom should have taken notes.
1: <laughs> um, and so, but because of that, like my relationship with bodies, and not like I said, that I don't get weird from time to time. I definitely can tell you when I hear myself putting myself down, like, oh, oops, <laughs> I'm I'm losing it. Um, but I had to divorce my relationships with my relatives from my body in order to be in this body, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I I rat, it's hard for me to rack my brain around it because it's so much more in-depth and intertwined than I ever realized like while it was happening. But just like how you're talking about your relationship with food in regards to your parents' relationship with food, in regards to their relationship with your body with food and all this stuff, it's just it it's so messy and it's so interwoven and stuff that it's like I don't know in some situations it's like I don't know any other way to have a healthy relationship with food rather than to to do what you're saying to distance yourself and separate it
1: and it's funny because when so I don't know if you remember when Lizzo announced that she was losing some weight for her health Mm-hmm. But like, there's two camps of people, right? There are people who really hate Lizzo's body and her liking it, and then there are people who really hate that Lizzo might tie weight to health in any way. Yeah, yeah. And I just sort of was perplexed by both camps, right? Like, what she wears or doesn't wear is none of your business. Uh huh. What her numbers look like at her doctor's office are also none of your business. What is happening in the middle of this, right, between the two extremes where it is her body that exists in public, but it's still her body, is that it's none of any of our business except hers, what happens to her body. Mm -hmm. And so I will periodically say to people, like, A, you got to divorce your stuff from your body, but B, you got to divorce your stuff from celebrity bodies,
0: there's just oh there's just so much to say about that specific topic about comparing yourself to people in the media just like you're talking about in regards to comparing yourself to your family members or what they have to say there's just there's so many voices and so many opinions that it just becomes noise and it becomes so hard to just have the space to figure out your own opinion and your own thoughts and what you care about for you and Oh yeah, I remember when all that was happening, and I was just floored. My gosh! Wow. So uh, I was reading. I was reading in your book uh, one of the earlier chapters where you were actually talking about hunger and about that whole topic of uh, food scarcity and how mainstream feminism. I mean, it, it branches out into so many huge things. But I'm just wondering, with you talking about growing up and this eating disorder and what food looked like in your family, um, how how do you kind of relate that to the big problems that the world has when it comes to making food accessible or shaming people for the kinds of food they eat or not being able to afford food? How What would you say about that?
1: So here's my Completely unscientific thing. Uh, we have made of food many things that have nothing to do with what food's actual purpose is, right? Uh-huh. We have made food a reward, a punishment, a, a moral high ground, a moral failing. Just, it's ridiculous, right? And because of that disordered relationship that predates any per- interpersonal relationships with food, As a society, we judge you if you can't keep your kids fed, if you're too poor, too poor to feed your kids, right? There's a saying, you can't feed them, don't breed them, Hmm. because magically when you have the baby, you're supposed to know your finances for the next 20 years, (laughs) right? So there's that. Then we have people who, because of morality purposes, will say, kids shouldn't eat and you can insert the whole list here because it isn't just ice cream, right? Like the demonization of sugar as like a thing that exists has been fascinating to watch, right? Where people will insist that um, sugar is giving everyone diabetes. So, so glucose, a major building block of human life is, huh? There's a middle ground here, bud. And it's mostly pancreatic issues. Like, whether you eat a lot of sugar or not for some people born diabetic because their pancreas is, uh, wandering in the dark somewhere, you really can't dictate whether or not what they ate will trigger type one diabetes. Cause again, they show up with it mm-hmm. in their genetics. Um, and so as a result, we don't really know how to have a healthy relationship with food at any point in life. Yeah, and at any level of government or program, right? So you'll see people kind of like Dr. Phil will have people on with extreme anorexia or whatever, or bulimia or whatever, pick your, pick your ED. And you'll see people talking about this is like an issue for middle class white people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Oh, yeah, And I'm always fascinated because the same people who were talking about, you know, oh, celebrities or why girls are anorexic now will never connect that with them saying that if you're poor you don't deserve food
0: oh my gosh
1: if you're struggling you don't deserve treats right like people don't think people should be buy junk food with food stamps or whatever it's the strangest whirlwind inside there of what we've assigned to food. And meanwhile, food's actual purpose is fuel for your meat suit. Absolutely. Fuel for the meat suit. Right? So one of the reasons I have sort of this, like, it's your own personal meat suit. Is I don't think we should be making food policy around anything but everyone having access to enough calories in whatever format they need, they desire taking them in so that they could run their meat suit like if you take all of the other emotion out of it you would find that hunger is a far easier thing to solve like we pretend hunger is unsolvable Mm -hmm. we have enough food what we don't have is enough people who can remove their feelings from food
0: oh wow i think that that is such a brilliant way of of putting it because I just thinking to so many conversations I've had with different dietitians and in different eating disorder groups and whatnot about just the emotion that you're talking about assigned to food and assigned to the different kinds and the shame and the the morality that you can place on this food or that food, like on pizza versus broccoli, like one's good and one's bad. like they both give your body what it needs in a different way. And if you break them all down, like Oh, there's just, there's so much in there that I want to learn so much more about, especially like when it comes to the science stuff of it, because I just feel so much anger towards the corporations and the people that have made it such a battle when it doesn't need to be, when people's literal lives are at stake for it. And it's just like, I just loved everything that you had to say in the book about it. And I think that the idea of making the proper amount of food for each person to as you said uh run their meat suit just just literally survive that is the solution like take away all the all the details that don't actually matter and there you go
1: well and especially because when it's like when we get into the weird morality around food we'll see like Oh, soul food is bad for you. Tacos or Mexican food is bad for you. Like only the Mediterranean diet is healthy, whatever. (laughs) But when you scratch underneath like the crap that is diet culture and like the fitness industry's bizarre things, actually all of these diets are fine. Mm -hmm. They all rely on you having meals that involve vegetables and protein and uh, bursts of other fruit and fat, right? Like the basic food pyramid stuff shows up all the time. So I will see these like, like there's a thing going around TikTok right now, like balsamic vinegar and sparkling water together tastes like Coca-Cola. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. (laughs) It absolutely does not. Stop lying.
0: Oh my God. Right?
1: And, You can drink a Diet Coke if you want a freaking Coke. But also, why do you need a zero calorie alternative to Coke that is going to taste bad, right? Like, I don't know if the recipe varies. The one I have, the video I've seen, the videos I've seen, it's all like um, balsamic vinegar and like LaCroix, LaCroix, whatever the hell that water is that tastes like static. I hate that stuff. Right. It's so bad. I'm like, neither one of these things tastes like something you should drink. Putting them together won't make something that tastes good. This is obvious, right?
0: Wait, people are saying balsamic vinegar in LaCroix tastes like Coca Cola? Yes. Oh, I had no idea that's a thing. Oh my God.
1: And it's the straight, shred- like, either. Either you had COVID, baby, and thus <laughs> you can't taste a thing. Uh-huh. Or you're lying to me. I will accept either answer, honestly. But uh. when you see stuff like that, or at least to me, when, you, when you're seeing people just make these claims, the answer genuinely is, oh, okay, this is just eating disorders. Mm-hmm. This is no different than the... Um, what are they called? Um, the zero calorie. Um, remember those? It wasn't Snackwells. It was some other brand. But for a while, they were like zero calorie, like pouches, or hundred calorie pouch snacks, or whatever. Like the Thins and Crisps and whatever of everything.
0: Yeah, I know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, and like one of the things was like a, some chips that wouldn't make you have fat, and then they had to admit it caused like diarrhea, like constant, never-ending diarrhea. Oh no it was like some oil in it that was supposed to block absorption and they hadn't told these people that it blocked absorption. All right. It blocked absorption. If you ate this stuff for several days. Oh God. And the words anal leakage were used. And so like, I feel like this is what's happening in some ways is that instead of us like here have access to whole foods and you choose what you eat. We keep trying to come up with science ways to replicate bodies that more than likely were riddled with uh tapeworms.
0: Oh gosh, yeah. Oh, that makes me feel sick to think about. <laughs> Man, I can is it okay if I read to you um a little I don't remember if it's in an exact quote, it's just something I wrote down from your book that is about all this, and then have you talk about it? Sure. Okay, so you were talking about um why we're more inclined to create programs to combat obesity than ones to address hunger. And then you went on to say how politicians use fat phobia and make obesity a scapegoat to deflect attention away from the policies that have adversely affected the health of low-income communities. Talk to me about that. Let's unpack that, because that's there's so much there.
1: So one of the things is... <laughs> I'm going to use the sugar tax, the same sugar tax thing uh, that I've used before, Okay, um, but not just sugar taxes. So you had all these politicians running out to save poor people from ill health by taxing soda, right? Like that was a big thing for a few years here. Yeah. And I was fascinated because whenever I or anyone else objected to it, as though we had sounded a whistle, people would show up in our mentions on Twitter to argue about obesity numbers in low-income communities in soda, right? And, like, the boogeyman is always, like, the people with soda and chips for breakfast, right? Yeah. And I was always, like, people having soda and chips for breakfast aren't having soda and chips because that's what they want. They're having it because it's, like, a 50-cent breakfast or a dollar breakfast. Yeah. It doesn't get any cheaper. We made healthy food super expensive, right? Mm -hmm. you want fresh squeezed orange juice from the grocery store not even from a restaurant from the grocery store which is using a machine like somebody stands there and drops a bunch of washed oranges into a giant bucket and the machine (laughs) makes the juice (laughs) they fill it and throw a cap on it and then they slap a label on this 64 ounces of juice that used to be like four or five dollars and I want to say the last time I looked it's closer to ten and then you say well why are you drinking soda well, a two liter of soda costs like 2 dollars $3 at most, right? With tax, might be less. But actually, I think they still have those 99 dollar 19 liters of soda, right? You yeah. can still get like whatever the deal is on the six packs and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But the cup of juice costs $3. A single cup of juice costs $3. I can give everybody in the family some soda for less money that I can give them orange juice. Oh my god. Gonna pick the and and the is shelf stable. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so this is the thing. What happens is we spend a lot of time around food policy restricting what poor people can eat, right? We every once in a while we see the claim that people getting food stamps are buying shrimp or buying lobster or buying steaks blah blah blah. Oh wow. But like the actual per day amount on SNAP Works out to something like five dollars per person per day on average.
0: Oh my gosh!
1: I've never seen a fifteen dollar lobster tail big enough to feed three people. Have you?
0: Mm-mm. Oh my so gosh!
1: So what's really happening is that, aside from the fact that these person this person who buys mythical grape food doesn't exist, um is that we, rather than saying like we're not giving people enough money to feed themselves, we're saying, well, they'd have more money on the non-existent budget if they didn't buy anything they liked. Oh, wow. Um, So we're going to tax soda because soda is the thing people with the least money are more likely to buy. We're going to point to obesity rates, even though this is a bizarre misnomer because we've changed what counts as obese. Right? Mm -hmm. So like that number has moved way down the scale. Yeah. And on top of that, we don't really have a standard for weight that takes into account different body types or Mm -hmm. racial heritage or literally anything else, right? Yeah. So all of this is bananas, right? Like, And what's funny to me is always that when I was severely underweight, except for a few like professionals as an adult, no one ever had anything to say about my weight, as someone who is now technically classed as overweight, I hear more about my weight now than I ever did before. But I guarantee you, I was very unhealthy at 94 pounds. hmm Right? At 190 pounds. I just went to the doctor today. My labs are pristine. My blood pressure is amazing. Oh, you're active. That's great. Blah, blah, blah. Right? Yeah. Because again we're in this middle range. And I'm lucky to have a doctor who has like common sense. Heck yeah. Right? But I had a different doctor who was convinced I was diabetic because of the number on the scale despite what my lab works said. She kept sending my as part of my labs to be checked for diabetes. What I actually had was a thyroid tumor. Completely oh, different, oh my gosh. Uh, Oh my
0: gosh.
1: (laughs) But so what's happening though, like we're seeing grocery prices go up right now, right? Yeah. I have no idea what $5 a day is going to do in this economy, but I know Mm -hmm. that it won't buy enough food.
0: Maybe some gum.
1: Right? Uh, And yet we're about to have yet another stupid conversation in which people insist that food and people's relationships with food are about morality and not poverty.
0: That just makes me want to pull out my hair. <laughs> oh my goodness. I just hearing all of this hearing all of this in this kind of way, like all like I feel like I've heard bits and pieces of this spread out in different conversations, but having all of this packed in right now is so eye-opening and so infuriating and just I feel so helpless. Like what do we what, what do we
1: do? So one of the things, and um I need to do a little digging to see who's working on this right now, is that we're gonna have to push either for the abolition of food stamps to be replaced by cash or for the metric for food stamps and other other programs to be adjusted for inflation. Yeah. Um the metric for poverty in the U S has nothing to do with what is actual poverty. Like the numbers and the math for this, um, are very much divorced from what things cost because we've never really adjusted those scales to address the changes, right? It's Uh the same thing as a minimum wage. Like everybody keeps saying a $15 minimum wage, but it's like $22 an hour is what you need to afford an apartment and uh, groceries, uh, as a single person in America. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and people will say, well, you know, those jobs, insert a list of jobs here, aren't supposed to be for ever. They're supposed to be for teenagers. And no one's ever been able to tell me what teenager is working at McDonald's, like, drive through at 10 o'clock in the morning in September. Because the teenagers are in school. Those are full-grown adults.
0: Oh, and boy. That's
1: where you're going every day for your breakfast or whatever. hmm And so the real push here is on politicians and on each other to stop doing the weird dance of my my tax dollars paying for lazy people and start thinking about why we think that if you're poor, you don't deserve food. Oh my gosh. And to be honest, also addressing why it is we think that enjoying your food is bad because that Calvinistic Puritan structure of like, hurt yourself with food because it's good for you also super bizarre oh yeah um one of my kids will eat broccoli every day if i make it right Uh we eat all the broccoli um i don't care if that kid never eats another green vegetable besides broccoli yeah right i don't care that this kid doesn't like lima beans or whatever so what but you'll have people who will insist, well, you can't just have only one green vegetable. Why? That kid likes broccoli and sweet potato. Kids got good taste. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and here's the kicker. If you look at the actual data about nutrition, that in and of itself is pretty much gonna cover the spread of what your body needs in terms of produce, right? hmm And then you throw in some, some chicken or some tofu or whatever, whatever. And even if this person is eating the same five meals, drinking a cup of orange juice, taking a multivitamin a day, whatever, whatever their fuel is, they're going to be eating correctly, healthy food, right? Mm-hmm. But, and they'll eat it because they enjoy it. But because we think you're, you're not supposed to enjoy every meal, not just that poor people are, you really listen to people talking about Picky eaters and broad palates and whatever. They always bring up stuff like, you know, chicken nuggets and pizza. Eat like an adult. Adults eat what they want to eat. Yeah, we do. Right? I'm not going to a restaurant and paying uh, $9 for a side of some vegetable I don't like. Right? Uh-huh. I'm eating the vegetables I do like. Every time I eat a vegetable, it's one I like them because I'm an adult. Yeah you go. Right? And no one gets to tell me different. But I'm an adult spending my cash. And so people feel like, okay, I guess you can make your decisions. They may have thoughts, but they know better than to voice them, right? They sound out of pocket. But if you kind of poke the edges, you realize that they also think that they're allowed to have those opinions about people spending not just food stamps, but about what teens are eating, about what someone Who's at a, restu- at a restaurant with them and a big group is eating. Well, it's embarrassing if you order blah, blah, blah. Why is it embarrassing? Mm-hmm. Why are you in such a divorced relationship from your body that you think other people's bodies are about your comfort? Mm. And the real answer, of course, is that that doesn't make any sense. And we have to kind of come to a place where we look at the fact that we have food available and what we should be doing is making sure everyone has access to the food. And then that's kind of the end of it. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. you'll see, like, the the narrative of, like, well, weight means that you're costing more in insurance or whatever. You know what actually is going to cost more than, than obesity? Starvation. Mm-hmm. Hunger. Right? Mm-hmm. Being malnourished causes a far greater long-term health issues. Oh, yeah. That's the thing. We've got to be... In conversations around food and poverty and health and whatever. We have enough food to feed everybody on the planet. We don't have a system, a mechanism in place to make sure everybody is eating. But we could fix that. We could focus on that instead of manipulating whatever the hell it is we're manipulating. this week.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's that's when it comes down to just making absolutely no, no sense at all to me why it is the way that it is when there's like the cold hard facts of exactly what you're saying. Oh my gosh. Oh man, well, Mickey, I I could talk to you, I feel like for so long, just asking you questions and listening to all of this. I've learned so much from, from this interview. Do you mind if I ask you one last question that doesn't really have to do with anything else?
1: Sure, go ask away.
0: Okay, okay, here's my question for you. It's very important. Uh, Mickey, would you rather have everybody's, everybody's feet be sparkly and change colors and smell really good, just always? Just everybody's feet are sparkly, changing colors, and smell good. Or would you rather have an assistant that was a... Dalmatian like a like a teenage Dalmatian like a like you know between puppy and like a doll that's like got all the energy and the attitude but it doesn't it's not like full grown yet and it and it is it's pretty good at his job it's pretty good but he's very forgetful and he gets easily distracted so he's kind of just like he's fun to have around because it's a Dalmatian it's a dog but at the same time, like he's kind of subpar. Like he's okay. What would you rather do?
1: I would rather everyone's feet be sparkly and smell good. I am biased though, because there's a 16 year old teenager in my house. Like a 16 year old boy in my house. So I, I'll take the, I'll take the <laughs> Yeah.
0: Colorful sparkly feet that smell good. That sounds like a good idea. I think that I'm going to vote for that as well. What color would your would you want your feet to be?
1: So I am a person I, I'm a sparkle slot. I love sparkly. So I would want yes. iridescent. Okay. Like I would I would want feet that, that could be a super pretty color no matter how the light hit it. Like a dark iridescent, I think it'd be
0: pretty. Oh, You don't even need shoes. Exactly.
1: Just need some like I do hate shoes. So that would be that
0: Ah, so does my partner. She does if she could never wear shoes, she would never wear shoes. We talk about it all the time. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh man. Well, Mickey, thank you so much again. Where can people find you and your work and learn more about these things that we've been talking about
1: today? Um, so I'm on Twitter as Carnethia. Uh, my books are in every bookstore where books are available. Uh, Amazon's abolitionists and activists. The graphic history of women's fight for the rights, or put feminism notes from the women a movement forgot. I also show up uh, at random on TikTok when I remember to make TikToks uh, and Instagram. So basically, I'm everywhere. And also because I am that kind of person, uh, you may at any point see my byline in your local paper because I decided to write something that one day.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing, Mickey. Thank you so much. Uh, For those listening, I'll put all these links in the description box below. Highly, highly recommend checking out Hood Feminism. And your other book, is that a graphic novel? Did I read that right? Yes, it is. Oh, that's awesome. I've been wanting to get into graphic novels, so I'm definitely going to have to check that one out. I saw that after I was already looking into your Hood Feminism book, and I was like, what? You are very awesome. Uh, But thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Mickey. If you are ever in St. Louis and you pass me by in a park or something, I'm going to give you a big high five because you rock. And if I'm in Chicago, I hope to see you there as well.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm certain we will run into each other. This was a lot of fun. So thank you for having me on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mickey, you have a wonderful rest of your day and try to stay cool out there.
1: All right, you too. Take care. Bye. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Unity Project Podcast. If you enjoyed and want to hear more, please do subscribe to this podcast. Share it with your friends, share it with your mom, share it with your dog. All the people and animals, share this with them. And go ahead and follow me on Instagram at JackieG.TV to keep up with updates. If you want to support this podcast and get more involved in it, then go to Patreon.com slash JackieGTV. Uh, All these links will be in the description box below. I'll see you next time.